Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, a.k.a. problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. More painful information about abuse in the Catholic Church has come to light this week. We discuss religion and power and share Sarah's conversation with Aaron Wathen, a Disciples of Christ minister and author of Resist and Persist. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We've gotten such great feedback on our conversation, continuing conversation on 9-11. We're going to take a pause on Tuesday and talk to Amy McGrath. We're so excited about that. But today we wanted to do a quick update on the news coming out um, about the continued abuses within the Catholic Church over the past several decades, and we're going to share, like we said in the opening of my conversation, with our friend and former, I guess, current sorority sister. I still consider myself a member of our sorority, Erin Wathen. 
The New York Times, I think, summarized the report coming out of Pennsylvania pretty well, so I'm just going to read directly from the Times. Bishops and other leaders of the Roman Catholic Church in Pennsylvania covered up child sexual abuse by more than 300 priests over a period of 70 years, persuading victims not to report the abuse and law enforcement not to investigate it, according to a searing report issued by a grand jury on Tuesday. The report, which covered six of the state's eight Catholic dioceses and found more than 1,000 identifiable victims, is the broadest examination yet by a government agency in the United States of child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. The report said there are likely thousands more victims whose records were lost or who who were too afraid to come forward. Horrific instances of abuse, a priest who raped a young girl in a hospital after she had her tonsils out, a victim tied up and whipped with leather, leather straps by a priest, and another priest who was allowed to stay in ministry after impregnating a young girl and arranging for her to have an abortion. Seemed to be a pretty intense conversation about this on Twitter, Beth. What what was the the immediate sort of reaction of a lot of our community? What I am hearing from our community is that this is both shocking and not surprising and that it is the kind of thing that has driven people away from the church and not just from the church, but from spirituality as a whole. Mm. That's heartbreaking. It is. As I've thought about this, you know, I have a hard time speaking about it because I am not Catholic and I want to be respectful of all the people in my life who are. I am Christian And I recognize that problems in Christianity are certainly not limited to the Catholic Church. I do think there is something unique in the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, which is vastly different from the churches that I have attended all my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that where religion has met with power, that is historically what has caused religion to go very wrong. And I think the line between power and service is one that human beings always have difficulty navigating. And I think there's something unique in a ministry dominated by men and men who are asked not to have sex and not to be in long-term committed relationships or short-term relationships or relationships of any kind. And and I think just a lot of factors have have come together and created the most crushing, grotesque abuse of power in a space that is supposed to be sacred and safe and holy that I can imagine. When I read over this report and when I think about the information we've all had for a very long time about the abuses within the Catholic Church, there's a couple of things that I always go back to. One is this is a grand jury report, but I think it's really important to always remember that this sexual abuse scandal was really brought to public light. There were people along the way consistently trying to expose this and protect their children and get priests away from children that since the beginning. Um, but it was exposed in a very public way by journalists. And I think in our current environment, it's always important to remember that. If you have not watched Spotlight, the movie about this, you definitely should because it's amazing and interesting and um, essential, I think, in our current media environment. The second thing I always think about is, you know, I was talking to a friend about this yesterday, and there are ideas that we have changed dramatically in the past several decades that I can still put myself in a place in which I can, I remember, or I can empathize with sort of how it was a long time ago. And what I mean by that is, you know, I can, I can understand 
I can, in the depths of my sort of imagination, remember and think about what it must have been like in the 60s when people um, had very dated ideas about gays and lesbians or about um, racial minorities. Like, I, I, I understand how we got there. I understand why people behave that way. It is very difficult for me to get myself in that space with the way we used to think about and react to and treat child abuse. In some ways, I think it's difficult because our our ideas about children have changed so dramatically. To me, this is definitely absolutely about power and religion, like all those things, exactly what you said. And I understand that. I just think it's also important to think about the way in which this is also a direct result of how people thought about children and our cultural ideas about children that I think we see as static and that are very much not static and unchanging. And, you know, it's still about power because children are, for the most part, powerless. Um, but, you know, one of my favorite books of all time, which is it's a book by Jennifer Sr. called All Joy, No Fun. And she talks about the, the, the ideas about children changed and they became economically useless but emotionally priceless. But that was not the case in the early 20th century and uh, before. You know, children were just not seen as these emotionally priceless creatures in need of protecting. And the other reason I kind of want to think about this is because I still don't think we're quite there. I still think that things happen to children because they are powerless, because we see them as outgrowths of ourselves, as, oppo- as opposed to um, individuals deserving of respect on on their own. I think it's hard for someone, you know, of our generation to understand how different the ideas about children were just 40, 50 years ago. And I think that was a really important component of the way this this abuse was allowed to run rampant is because children were seen as sort of expendable and not individuals deserving of respect and protection. You know, they're just sort of the bottom of the tone pole. And I just think that even today, I think it's easy to think that that was a thing that used to happen or to get angry at just the Catholic Church, but I think there are all manners of ways in our society still to this day that abuse of children is allowed to flourish because we don't treat and respect children as individual human beings. It's also important to note that this report is not just about the abuse of children. Mm-hmm. There are younger priests who were abused. There were seminary students who were abused. I think that alongside attitudes about children and expendability, there is an air of infallibility about leadership Mm -hmm. that is central to this and that I think is so relevant to everything happening in our political climate. Yep. The, The idea, and listen, this is definitely not confined to the Catholic Church. The idea that someone is in some way anointed by God and therefore cannot be criticized, cannot be at fault. This is a huge problem in our religious culture. I was talking to my very dear friend last night about how church is tricky because so many people come to church, all of us in some way, you know, are in some pattern of this. We come to church, we come to any kind of 
religion or spiritual program because Mm -hmm. there is something empty in us that needs to be filled up, right? There is some impetus for asking big questions about who we are and why we're here and what any of this means and what's my place in it. Depending on where you are in your life and your understanding of the world and your conceptualization of of yourself, Mm -hmm. church can very quickly become a very powerful, dangerous drug. And it's hard to navigate all the different places people come from as as they run into a congregation or an organization. And that's why I think that our politics have gone so awry because a lot of us are filling ourselves up and asking those big questions through politics, too. And there is such an association in both organized religion and I would argue other kind of spiritual programs, right, that are maybe non-traditional but have some of these same issues. You know, Sarah and I just had a very heated discussion on Instagram about Tom Cruise and Scientology. (laughs) You know, all of these places where we come because we are lacking something and want someone to fill it up for us um, that get too human, too much about money, too much about hierarchy, too much about individual identity, we create the perfect conditions for people to abuse one another. And that is a hard thing to grapple with as a person of faith, but it is something that we all need to get very honest about because the idea that this is an old problem that's been solved, and that's the narrative coming from certain aspects of the Catholic Church, right? We we know we addressed this. We're sorry. We can't say sorry enough. Give us a little credit. We're making progress. Like we're if you look at our culture, even at a glance today, we're not even close to getting rid of the conditions that create this stuff. This is it's the same set of stuff that created Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement. It's all the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the thing. It's like in no way, shape, or form are we saying that the Catholic Church is not bad because everybody does it. That's not what we're saying. I mean, the Catholic Church needs to take revolutionary action in order to address this. I'm thinking like dramatic restructuring of its hierarchy or its requirements to be a priest. I don't think I think anything short of something truly fundamental, essential is going to do it. That's the first thing. But also villainizing the Catholic Church and acting like this is the the Catholic Church is nothing more than what many organizations are, which is a, a a organization of human beings. And human beings are deeply flawed, and especially when you throw power into the mix. And so, you know, I think that until we can recognize that if the Catholic Church ceased to exist tomorrow, like you said, there would still be abuses. There would still be problems because this is a problem with human beings, not necessarily Catholics, because Catholics are just human beings. <laughs> and that, like we talked about, even with the the conversation on Tuesday about unless we say, instead of saying, oh, you know, they're the worst, I would never do that. And still we, instead we say, how do we prevent this by recognizing these are mistakes we all could make? Then, and that's not to say, you know, obviously that we all could abuse children. But I think that there is, it's important to recognize the sort of mistakes that we are prone to make, especially when power is at stake, especially when there's something to be protected, Um, especially when, like you said, it's easy to be, to make ourselves feel better and to find easy answers to hard questions by building a power structure that makes us feel better or by supporting someone with no questions asked. Um, I think that that's, that's the bigger thing to always keep an eye on. You know, having said that it's all the same, I also want to say, like, 
everything that you just said about power is so amplified in the context of religion. Yep. And if you've ever even just had your feelings hurt about something at church, it hurts 10 times worse than in the rest Mm -hmm. of life because Mm -hmm. you come to that with such expectation of other people. And it's easy in church to forget that people are just people and that we're going to make mistakes. And I think church, just like other institutions, is suffering from a lot of people saying, my expectations have been disappointed, so I'm out. And I understand why people are saying that. And I also see the circular effect of that, right? You get... It doesn't get better by people walking away from it. When you are in a situation where someone has power and they are saying, I have derived that power directly from the most powerful thing Mm -hmm. that you can possibly imagine, it amplifies all of it. It makes it so much worse. It's like an accelerant. It is. There are all types of accelerants. Like you said, when, when there's a job at stake, when money's at stake, when power's at stake, when religion is involved... When gender is involved, when race is involved, these are all accelerants to sort of some of our worst instincts as human beings. And that's something to always sort of try to piece apart and look at. And it's hard. And, I, you know, that's why we, before we started the show, we said, well, wait, should we, should we share our conversation with a faith leader in the context of such a damning report? about communities of faith. And, you know, my response is, yeah, because this, it's a female minister asking very difficult questions about gender and power within the structure of religion, I think is a great conversation to be having right now. And so we're going to have that next. And I'm certain this is a discussion that will continue and continue with all of you. And thank you in advance for what I know will be your very thoughtful comments about this. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now. And there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk tops. Premium luggage options and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in japan they like a loose flowy look over there to battle the heat i will be adopting that strategy with that skirt pack your bags with high quality essentials from quince go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns that's q-u-i-n-c-e.com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash pantsuit Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to be here with Erin Wathan. Do you have an official, like, religious title? I am Reverend. Reverend. That's because, you know, I was a Baptist and now I'm an Episcopal. And so I get all the titles super confused because everybody does it differently. Yeah. Reverend Erin Wathan, also known as my grand big sister. That's probably the more important title in our short. Now that I'm like 40 grand sounds a little... um a little intimidating. But we went to college. She went to Transy with us. She was FIMU with Beth and I. Um, and then she went into the ministry and she's written an amazing new book called Resist and Persist, Faith in the Fight for Equality. And we're so excited to have her on to talk to us. Tell us about your life in between being my grand big and becoming the author of this book. Erin, introduce yourself to the people. Well, after college, I just kind of floated for a while like uh, all the fun people do. And I wound up, I worked at a hotel for a while. And I somehow wound up in seminary. I still to this day <laughs> could not tell you how the hell that happened, but um, I wound up in seminary and didn't really think I was going down the congregational ministry path. I was thinking more about uh, nonprofit and social justice kind of work uh, when I started. And just I, gradually over the next few years, I kind of felt more and more called into that congregational life. Uh, Served a couple of churches as uh, intern and minister in residence, and then I moved to Phoenix, Arizona, when I was in my late twenties. Kind of had just been married for a couple of years, and we moved to Phoenix, where I got my first pastorate. I served there for seven years. Uh, kind of had had two babies while I was out there. Just you know, big deal in my free time. And then <laughs> kind of learn learn to do a little bit of the life balance thing of uh, how how you parent and lead a church at the same time. Uh, luckily, after our second was born, my husband uh, quit his work to stay home with kids 
which he did for five years. And so that was uh, hugely helpful in me being able to still do, do the kind of work that I did. And then five years ago, we moved from Phoenix to the Kansas City area where I took a call as the senior pastor of St. Andrew Christian Church. So that's where I am now. It's a intentionally progressive congregation in the suburbs on the Kansas side of the state line. Um, the church has been LGBT affirming since it started more than 25 years ago, and they've always had a really strong emphasis on um, environmental ministry. And increasingly, uh, these days, we are really concerned with racial and economic justice. So those are a few of the big conversations in in our life right now. And meanwhile, my kids are got a seven and a nine-year-old, and more and more of my life is about their life. And I know you know how that (laughs) run into baseball and ballet and church camp and friends houses and all that these days. And um, yeah, so my, my husband's gone back to work in the last couple of years as they've gotten bigger. So that's an adventure too. So I love this book. It is really the intersection of feminism and social justice and faith work, which is something we think a lot about on the podcast. And you talk about a a bunch of different um, particular subjects throughout the book. But the one I wanted to talk about, which is one I've been thinking a lot and it's really been foundational in my thinking recently, and I wish it had come along sooner, which is about the words we use for God and the words we use for the Holy Spirit. This is something I read about for the first time in Marcus Borg's book, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, yes. about Sophia and all this stuff that I'd never, shockingly, never heard in the best, growing up in the Southern Baptist Church. I know, no. It's really, no way. It's really surprising. And you talk a lot about, sort. you talk a little bit about the theology and the, the history of the interpretations and the languages and how historically sort of this gender neutral language or even feminine language for God and the divine was just sort of written out. And this is my favorite paragraph. You say, why does it matter? Because over time, the gradual, this makes me cry, because over time, the gradual removal or phasing out of the feminine divine has diminished the once common assumption that men and women were created equally in the image of God. The notion that men are first and women are secondary and derivative lays a firm foundation for the subjugation of women. Even for ancient Hebrews, reverence for a feminine divine being did not necessarily shape what kinds of authority and autonomy women were granted in daily life. Oh, it's so good. But if no one's ever said that to you. You know, even like I said, like tearing up even at 36 years old because no one said, hey, by the way, this language wasn't always like this. This idea that God is father, king, husband, you know, son, that's it. No, there's no feminine here. It's like you said, it's all derivative. Like you just don't realize how much that affects you. No, you absolutely don't. And not only you, but all the systems that we're a part of. Right. All the things that shape our culture and our life and our family, just every part of our lives is saturated with this. And, you know, you talk about growing up Southern Baptist and, oh, it's no surprise that you never learned any of this. But I grew up in a Disciples of Christ church and disciples are, you know, mainline, moderate to progressive. Uh, Even in southeastern Kentucky, they were a fairly uh more progressive voice when I was growing up. You know, we had women serving as elders and deacons when my Pentecostal and Baptist friends had never heard of such a thing. And they were just always, you know, a little bit scandalized to come to church with me and see see women praying up front or passing the communion around. But for all that, I never heard any of that 
feminine divine talk in my whole life growing up. Never heard the idea that um, God might not be a man or that um, some of our history, some of the history of our faith had been a little bit um, skewed towards the masculine along with the culture that it was a part of at any given time and place. And so I didn't really come across the concept of inclusive language until seminary. Um, where, Well, of course, in, in the less religious expressions, that was, that was part of the dialogue at Trancy, right? So you say humankind instead of mankind and that sort of thing. But as far as in a religious context, I'd never come up, come across this idea of inclusive language until seminary. And I was what, 24, 25 when I start. And it's hard to break. Like, even though I could, in learning this, I was learning history and theology and all this context around it. I could logically and reasonably change how I view the divine and how I talk about the divine, but it was still, um, it was still not natural, you know, it's still yes. like a really, really strange things to be saying out loud sometimes. Yeah, it does. And it's like, I feel like people either have two reactions, either they're outraged. How dare you? This is blasphemy. Or there's like this eye rolly. What does it matter? So politically correct. Everything's so politically correct. These yes. Days. To be like this. Yes. But like, unless you're like you said, it's so it's weirdly natural but then until you have someone sort of of authority who knows the Bible that says, hey, this is not the way it's always been read or interpreted. And this Father, Son, Holy Ghost, you know, King, all this male language. And like I said, until you really start to say it in your head or out loud or in your prayers, you don't realize how much it affects you. And it really does. Yeah, it absolutely does. I, I got a letter from a reader last week and let me just to clarify, I am not a like getting fan mail every day kind of writer. I, mean, <laughs> I get some trolls here and there, but as far as like notes and correspondence from readers that I don't know, that's maybe a couple times a year that happens to me. But I get this note from a reader who um, wrote this just page long, deeply heartfelt letter about how much this book was changing his life wow. and affecting him as a father among other things, but this this one part he was telling me about what he does, and he is a church choir director, and he was talking about how hard he's been pushing this inclusive language thing with his church folks because, you know, hymns, sacred music is one of the hardest places to overcome that kind of language because oh, there's so much, so much father and king stuff in there, and people People have some feelings about their music in church. Oh, yeah, they do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they have some feelings mm -hmm. about. So it's one thing to say, you know, maybe you could say Mother God in a prayer every now and then. But to go and try to change change the words to songs that are deeply rooted in people's beings and just very profoundly a part of who they are is really triggering. Yeah. It's, it's really triggering for folks. And I, I kind of err on the side of, you know what? Some of these good old hymns, if you say Father God every now and then, so be it. Like it's not um, it is not harming me as a woman to hear that every now and then. As long as in the same space, you're comfortable saying mother sometimes or saying she. 
sometimes yeah. when you were in other parts of the service. Um, but he w- he was just talking about how how hard that conversation is with with even his choir folks, and that this is not like a fundamentalist. Uh, conservative congregation. It's a mainline Protestant church where women have been in leadership for generations and, you but know, still. and still, and still, it's so hard. Well, and what my other favorite thing you talk about in the book, and I think it is related, paradoxically, at the same time, we were stripping any language about the divine mother or mother spirit or Sophia and all these sort of feminine divine energies we were elevating human motherhood to the end all be all. It was like, well, we'll strip all this out of any discussion of God. And in in exchange, (laughs) we'll make the only way you can contribute anything of value through this Christian ideal of Christian womanhood and motherhood. And I really particularly like your discussion of Mother's Day in the church, which I think is true Mother's Day culturally. So tell us some of your thoughts on that. Uh, You know, I think it's almost an idolatry of mm. of prototypical womanhood to kind of worship this idea of of femininity that is rooted in house and home and nurturing you know people yeah. love that image and i'm not saying it's it's entirely wrong or off base because i'm a mother and that is deeply a part of who i am but i think it's also been a way to um not so subtly kind of, you know, glorify that part of womanhood at the expense of other expressions of femininity to downplay, um, you know, career or artistic expression or sexuality or any kind of um, aggression Mm, or anger. And anger, dear Lord, we hate an angry woman. It's just, um, yeah, these things that that people have become deeply uncomfortable with. And God bless you if you're a black or brown angry woman. Woo! Yes, yes. Well, that's why my, on the comedian note, that's why my favorite person on planet Earth right now is Allie Wong. Mm-hmm. Because I find something so, so deeply subversive and amazing of not only a woman but a pregnant woman uh-huh. and a pregnant Asian woman yes. saying the things she says. Yes. I love it. Mwah. It's so perfect <laughs> in every way. I love her so much. That's right. Well, and what I want to say about this, this, the motherhood thing too, is just to, to, you know, Dr. Phil doesn't do a lot of right, but he has one good thing and it's the whole, how's that working for you? Like, I want to even look at the women who really, fully subscribe to this idea of biblical womanhood and like you said almost the idolatry of motherhood stay-at-home mothers who feel like it is their total and complete purpose in life to mother their children and just be like how's that working for you you live in your best life without feeling any external pressure on this job you're doing like Mm -hmm. even if it's your if it's your highest and best use and it most certainly could be yes like even if that's you like don't you feel that don't you feel that pressure that like even when it's your whole reason for being, it's never quite enough. Like, I know you have to feel that. Like, it's not even great for people who love that idea of motherhood. Yeah. It's it's never quite enough, and you are never quite enough in it. There's that constant tension between I'm supposed to feel like this is the most fulfilling, uh, you know, best, highest work I could possibly be doing, um, and yet I have to look good doing it. Yep. And <laughs> can't ever have any feelings 
that yeah. are negative or, you know, unkind or I, it's hard. Yeah. And I really love your discussion about motherhood in the church and the mm-hmm. pink carnations and the the subtle undercurrent of, like you said, like, we're going to give you this, this one day. Yeah. And this one pretty thing. Yeah. Make you feel better about all the ways that. And it also, and I think the other important point you make is it erases everybody else's experience of motherhood. Right. Right. Um, And it also, it also assumes a lot of things about women's desire to be mothers. Uh, And I Mm. think that's something culturally that has been deeply damaged to, to women's lived, I'm sorry, done deep damage to women's lived experience is kind of impose that desire on yeah. from a young age. And that's one thing I think millennials are figuring out and doing better is that, you know, this whole assumption that I have to, not just women, but men too, this whole assumption that I have to bring children into the world and be a parent is a lie. Yeah. Um, it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does not, you know, the, the species is not going to die away if, only 50% of us decide to procreate. Hey, listen, mm-mm. it's not about the species. It's about the economy. That's where that lie comes from. Absolutely that too. They need everybody. They need the economy to grow. And in order for the economy to grow, they need everybody to keep producing at higher and higher rates to buy stuff. So that's where that comes. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, well, it's true. And that's another intersection of patriarchy and uh, capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I bring that up several times too, is that patriarchy is really at the um goes to work every day to uphold this capitalist consumer kind of culture and all the ways that the economy depends on women being in certain roles and um you know being without certain kinds of autonomy that that all just fuels the, the system absolutely Absolutely. So what inspires you to write this book? Oh, man, I think like a lot of us, I just sort of sat with my mouth hanging open through the whole election cycle in 2016 going, how how is how is this guy even still in play? How do you say the things he has said and do the things he has done and still have the support of so many, so many people that we think of as being you know, pretty intelligent and compassionate people. And then um, after the election, my my publisher actually approached me to write what they called initially the Nasty Woman's Guide to the Resistance. <laughs> that was what they wanted me to write because they felt like there needed to be a loud and swift uh, faith-based feminist response to the rhetoric that was coming out of all that. And um, I I immediately agreed to write the thing they were asking me to write, but I pushed back on the title a little bit because I said, nasty women, first of all, does not resonate with a lot of people that we'd want to read this book. Yeah. Uh, And why use his language? And why use his language? Exactly. Um, And also I said, nasty women's kind of a trending hashtaggy kind of topic. It's going to have a certain shelf life. This was already six months after the whole nasty women thing. And I knew it would be another year till the book hit the shelf. So I said, it's going to already be kind of a stale 
um, who's still talking about this kind of thing. So how can we reframe it? So it's a got a little bit more staying power in the, in the public frame. And then also that's going to have a broader potential audience uh, because I wanted not just women to be reading this book, but men too. And I wanted it to be a faith-based conversation about just women's experience that would not immediately be off-putting to anybody from a more conservative kind of kind of place. Because I think folks in more conservative churches need need to hear some of this more than anybody. Right. Um, that, that there are faith-based reasons for pursuing equality for women. It's good for families. It's good for children. It's good for, you know, a lot of the things that more conservative folks claim to care about. And so I, I wanted this book to be something that would engage across, across party lines. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin. So it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earthbreeze sheets feels like they were invented for this because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs, or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, God, I love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack, flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. 
Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. How do you do that and talk about that now? That's what something that's the conversation right now is because of recently Sarah Huckabee Sanders being kicked out of the restaurant. There's this conversation about civility. And this is something we talk about a lot in the podcast. Like as a person of faith, as a person of faith, angry at the injustices of this administration and and the systems that this administration props up. How do you talk to people about how to engage without dehumanizing, without, that's something we get a lot of pushback. People are basically like, you know, their race is human garbage. We should call them that. And we're like, no, mm, no. And you all do such a good job of that. You really do. Um, And I, I try so hard in my blog to say, you know, not all conservatives and not all this, 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 but it's, it's so difficult because also there's an edge to what I write and there's, um, I think I'm expressing a kind of, you know, maybe a little bit of snark that <laughs> that a lot of women don't feel empowered or have not felt empowered to express, and especially women of faith don't feel empowered to express. So I really walk a tight line with having that edge and that uh, kind of fire in there without totally dehumanizing the total uh, conservative machine. So I think what I try to do, what I try to do is draw a line between the systems and the people in them. So like you can call a system evil. You can call a line of rhetoric evil. You can call out the leaders that are enabling kind of furthering that line of rhetoric that is so toxic to so many people. And you can name the vulnerable people that are being harmed by these systems, but still have a little bit of grace for, for the people within that have gotten, that have gotten caught up in the world of Fox news sound bites, you know? Well, and it's like, I talked, I talked about this on a recent podcast. I just said, like, I'm just going to start calling it verbal nonviolence, like, because nonviolence works for a reason. Yeah. It works because you do not engage. It works because you do not, give fuel to the but ifs, but the whatabouts to the, you know, like if you just refuse to engage in that level of sort of emotional attack, especially because this particular president is fueled by it, any oxygen you give to his nastiness by mirroring it back to him just empowers him. And that's something I desperately do not want to do. So, you know, it's not like Martin Luther King was standing calmly and Selma and then you know, calling people racist crackers while standing there. Like you can't, you can't have it both ways. Like you can either take, you can either go high and have the moral high ground and say, I'm not going to do that. And it's frustrating. And sometimes you feel like, is this the right approach? But like, I just, you know, as a person of faith, I just feel like I cannot dehumanize someone because it dehumanizes me. 
Absolutely, it does. And I think there's an important distinction to draw there between taking the high ground and and staking your life in that moral nonviolence and being passive. Yeah. There's a difference there. Because I think what a lot of people I hear in more conservative circles right now, what I hear a lot of them expressing is any resistance to women and especially people of color who are making any kind of public witness who are pushing for any kind of social change. And there's a desire there for people to just be nice again. Well, what they yeah. mean is what they mean is be silent. Yeah. What they mean is be passive. And they, they invoke the name of Martin Luther King as though Martin Luther King was just this nice. Making people guy. comfortable. He no. just, he brought everybody no. together because he was nice. And that is not, no. That is not any sort of reality-based narrative. Um, I no. think it's really important to to have folks understand that you can be committed to nonviolence, but still um, uh, still shaking up systems and making making some holy discomfort that's going to cause social change. Yeah, and- because I mean, you can you can take incredibly uncomfortable, challenging political positions without attacking you can say black lives matter without calling the president racist like you can do that and i'm not saying you shouldn't call him racist because i I believe he's racist racist. (laughs) but you know what i mean like there's also there's like there's all the science that like the second you tell people they're racist the conversation shuts down or the second you tell people that or there's all this interesting research about like when you talk about the white population being a minority Mm -hmm. how that affects people and like, it's not about, oh, I don't want to make them uncomfortable. It's about, I want to win the argument. And so if it shuts it down, then let's find another way to talk about it. If the science tells us, you know, we're supposed to be the science-based group here. So if the science says this shuts the conversation down and makes people resentful, which right. resentful people are dangerous and all these things, then let's find another way to talk about it. Not because I want them to be comfortable, but because I want them to be convinced. Yes. And I understand that there are some people who will never be convinced. I'm uncomfortable with that right. as well. Right. But I think the way that we are engaging, the way we're engaging now is pushing away people who are moderate, who are in the center, who can be convinced. Absolutely. And that's what I'm frustrated by. And it's a it's a legit frustration, but you're doing good work towards uh, overcoming that. So I think you're you're a good model for the rest of us. Well, tell me about I think a a place in the book, too, that you're a really good model for this tightrope of really difficult, uncomfortable conversations. And you save it to the end is abortion and mm-hmm. how that is such a difficult place um, for people of faith. And so tell tell our listeners your sort of personal and political position on that, what you talk about in the book. Yeah, I, you know, the, my short answer is it's complicated. Mm-hmm. I think we live in this binary world where a lot of hot button issues, and especially that when you are either liberal or, the or other. conservative, you are either Christian or non-Christian. And what I know from just from my own belief and from a lot of people that I know well and am connected with through all these um, different platforms is that there is another way, a third way. Uh, Jesus was always about the third way, right? But I, I think you can be deeply and passionately for life in every sense, pro life, but also recognize that as a political action, something that is, you know, legally enforced, it just doesn't make 
any kind of human sense <laughs> to, to mm. criminalize what a woman does with her body. And that there are so many complicated social and economic and biological even factors at play in this conversation that it can't just be an either or. You know what I was thinking about when I was reading the book? It's not like people of faith aren't comfortable or don't understand this different approach. We right. are all, people of faith are personally Christian, but politically for freedom of religion. Obviously, they're Americans. It's not like any of us don't understand the difference between even people deeply of deeply conservative faith who like fire full fire and brimstone. You're going to hell. You don't believe the way I do. That's about as as high stakes as it gets. But they're not advocating to legally require people to be Christian. So it's not like we don't have other examples of where we're delineating the difference between our personal beliefs and having the government enforce our personal beliefs on other people. Right. Right. But that is such a fraught territory, I think, mm -hmm. in so many ways. And this is the one topic that just brings up all the stuff and all the feelings for all the people on every side. Yeah. You know, to it, it just makes so much more sense to say, if you value life, then you value all life. And you want all children to be brought into a world where they can be loved and cared for. And you want all women to have all the resources they need to love and care for that child. Then you look at, you know, what I talk about in the book is an ethic of life. Mm. And part of the ethic of life is recognizing that the decision I might make for my body based on my personal beliefs comes out of a certain kind of privilege you know, I can say all day long, well, I would never have an abortion or I would at least never have an abortion just because the pregnancy was inconvenient or I would never put myself in a situation to be pregnant if I didn't want to be pregnant. It's just so obtuse to the reality of so many women in so many parts of the world who don't always have agency over their bodies in their relationships or who don't have access to birth control or even sex education. Um, it it takes into account my economic privilege that, you know, having a if I, Lord, if I got pregnant right now, it would absolutely like blow my mind and put mm -hmm. a cramp on my life that I don't even want to think about. Uh, but it would not be an economic hardship. Yeah, I could feed and close and house a third child right now for. I mean, it wouldn't be fun, but I could do it. <laughs> it's not going to knock me below the poverty line. It's not going to, you know, jeopardize an already precarious situation that I'm in. So yeah. I, I think that people who take that hard line on no abortion for anybody ever are, are really, they need to check their privilege at the door. And that's, that's all there is to it. But to turn around and then villainize people like me who say, yeah, I don't think it's great, but it needs to be legal. And say that we're not Christian or that, um, you know, we're these evil, evil feminazis or whatever that it it's just such a narrow view of a world that is wide and complex. And let's be clear on the pro-choice side, there is villainizing of anyone who it says or even implies that abortion is not awesome for everyone. Right. Like that's not helpful either, guys. Right. Like, that's not leaving a lot of room at the table. You know, that there's that awesome article about Obama's sort of abortion policy and how it basically crumbled because the other side couldn't bear, either side could not bear the thought that the other side would get even a 
millimeter of what they wanted. Of any sort of victory, yes. Of any sort of victory. Just could not stand it. And I just thought, how unfortunate. How unfortunate because we're so unwilling to compromise. We both lose. Right. And that's really the crux of a lot of our big social issues right now is that we we want to win more than we want to see change happen. Yep. Whereas, so rather than seeing anything as victory for the other side, if we could see the potential victory for society, for the next generation of children, for people who are poor and marginalized, like if we could start looking through that lens at everything, it would change the conversation. And if we could, talk about life and birth and um, even just the experience of pregnancy and motherhood through the lens of what's going to be good for women and children on the whole, then that completely changes dynamics. And to change that conversation, we have to have more women in politics, which I know that but there've got to be women in the room on both sides of the aisles when you're actually making those decisions and not and in, and in faith communities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this goes um you know this goes for for Democrats and liberals too. Like I think we can we can all day long elect men who say they are for women and who say they're feminist and who say they're uh pro-choice whatever that means to them, but unless you've got women in representation, nothing changed because the dialogue doesn't change. Right. And if we had more women in major policymaking positions in both parties, it would be a totally different conversation. Absolutely. Got women looking out for women. So that's, I think is the goal. I think that's a perfect end spot. Is there anything else that you would like to add or say about feminism and faith? No, I think that's a good end spot to the whole representation. We just need more women. We do. We need more women in all the things and all the places. All the places. I'll be good. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Well, Erin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Good to see you. And we're giving away two copies of Erin's book, including my marked up copy. So you'll get to see my notes in there on Instagram. So check that out. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And until next week, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you to Aaron Wathen for spending time with Sarah. Thank you, Sarah, for that great interview. We'll be back with you on Tuesday with Amy McGrath. Get excited. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsy Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, George Niedermeyer, James Randall, Cherry Haas, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, www.pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly emails and follow us on Instagram.